Well, good evening, everyone. I'm Wayne Hillsden, been around here a long time. We helped to pass, uh, found the congregation back 39 years ago, and we're still hanging around and uh, having a wonderful time. And my wife's right over there. So what a privilege it is to have Craig and Medine Keener with us. Both of them are doctors. They have PhDs in various fields. And I would say that uh, without any doubt that uh, Dr. Craig Keener is one of the, I would say the top three New Testament scholars of our day, has written 30 books. Maybe there's some samples of books up here that we can look at. Um, couldn't show them all, there's just too many. But look at this one, Gosp Commentary in the Gospel of Matthew and Revelation. Well, that's important because tomorrow night, Craig Keener is going to be uh, speaking about the Jewish backgrounds of Matthew and the Jewish backgrounds of Revelation. And we have some more books up here. Acts, look at that on the left. That is one volume out of four volumes, each of them this thick, uh, over 4,000 pages, just on the book of Acts. Wow. Uh, any more up there? This is what I wanted to share. What a story, a love story, between Craig and his wife, Medine. Medine is from Congo. Medine, would you stand? We want to welcome you to King of Kings tonight. Bless you. And uh, just a powerful story of, of God's love and grace and bringing you together for such a time as this. Uh, Craig Keener was an atheist, and he's on fire for God. And one of the things I'm impressed with, and I've spent, we, my wife and I have spent three, or actually a whole week now together, and traveling all over the country, and uh, just seeing his heart after God, and the combination of using his intellect along with uh, his Holy Spirit uh, insights and uh, passion for the Lord. And it's hard to break him away from his devotions in the morning. But I said, we got to get going. Got to get on the move and see the sights. And so uh, look at all this about the Holy Spirit that he's written as well. So uh, it's not that usual for uh, the scholars of our day uh, to put an emphasis on the work of the Holy Spirit, uh, but you have done that in a wonderful way. Well, we're in a series called Puzzles, and we've been looking at various passages of the Scripture that on first reading, you might misunderstand what it's saying or be confused. There are paradoxes and uh, sometimes apparent contradictions, and I don't think we should avoid these issues, but actually speak into them. And you've been reading the Bible, Ever since you were born again, you used to read 40 chapters a day, I know, before you even got into the, the scholarship that you've done, and you really know the Word. So I want to just ask you a bunch of questions, some of them challenging, but I know the Lord's going to use you to, uh, to answer them. So here at King of Kings, we declare very loud and clear that Yeshua is the Messiah, and he's the only Savior of the world. Um, and it's wonderful, Jewish scholars today who aren't believers yet... Um, are starting to give more credence to this Yeshua, Jesus, and saying, yeah, he's Jewish and he's one of us. Maybe not come into full revelation of who he is, but it's, it's been amazing. Um, is there any evidence that Yeshua is more than just a great teacher and a distinguished rabbi within Judaism? Is he more than that? Certainly. I mean, you see him as a, as a prophet and... Uh, well, he calls himself Son of Man, which in Daniel chapter 7, oh boy, there's so much we could go into. But By the way, we're going to get some mini sermons this evening, okay? <sighs> if you thought, hey, I didn't come to see an interview, you're going to get sermons, okay? Anyway. And, and I may inter interrupt it at times. I think you've given me permission to do that. But I've got about five prepared questions, and it might get down to two or three, depending on how long this goes. Okay. Well, go for it. Yeah, the Son of Man in Daniel chapter 7, you, you have the, the saints of the Most High, God's people, who suffer under the hands of the final empire. You've got these four empires, each portrayed as beasts, from Babylon to what was in the first century understood as the Roman Empire. And suffering under that are the saints of the Most High, who are also identified with the Son of Man. Each of the four beast empires are 
they, they represent both the empires and the kings in those empires. But after you have the, the four empires portrayed as beasts, you have one kingdom, one empire, that's depicted instead as a, as a human one. And this is the kingdom of God. And the, the text is specific about this. It's both the kingdom and the king. Well, after suffering under the hands of this final evil empire, this king is exalted, and the, the kingdom is exalted, and then it says that the king receives worship in its language that's only used for God, and yet, you know, he also embodies uh, or identifies with the saints of the Most High and with humanity, so he brings those together. Uh, we see elsewhere, like in, in the book of Isaiah, uh, chapter, chapter 9, the mighty God, and it is a divine title. I mean, it's used for God in the very next chapter. So what, what we see there, though, is it brings together different expectations because people were expecting, okay, this, this glorious Son of Man. They were expecting especially uh, a Davidic Messiah. They were expecting also, Isaiah spoke about God coming to restore his people and to lead them back to Zion. So we, we have different different images of what God was going to do in the time that he would restore his people. What people weren't expecting, even though it was there in Isaiah 9 and some other passages, is that these would all be fulfilled in one person. Makes it actually a whole lot simpler for that to happen. And we see that, well, everybody probably knows in the Gospel of John, like the, the introduction of the Gospel of John is actually framed with Jesus' deity. So, in the beginning was the Word, the Word was with God, the Word was God in John 1.1. 1, 1. And then in John 1.18, it says that no one has beheld God at any time, but the one and only God who is in the bosom of the Father has made him known. But it also frames most of the Gospel. Uh, so, from 1.1 1, 1 and 18, to chapter 20, verse 28, where Thomas confesses, my Lord and my God. You've got all these confessions of faith throughout this gospel. Um, King and, and uh, Son of God in um, chapter one, in chapter six, Peter confesses Jesus is the Holy One of God. But finally, climactically in chapter 20, Thomas confesses Jesus as my Lord and my God, uh, language adopted from the Psalms. For, for God himself. But people say, ah, that's just the Gospel of John. So if you look in the Gospel of Matthew, there Jesus is said in chapter one and verse 23 to be God with us, using the language of Isaiah 7:14, And in chapter 28, verse 20, it says that, that he's with us until the end of the age, which is very interesting because in Jewish expectation, the only one who could be with everybody at once, the only one who was omnipresent, was God himself. In fact, later rabbis sometimes called him makom, the place, meaning the omnipresent one. But especially in chapter 18, verse 20, where Yeshua says to his followers, where two or three of you are gathered in my name, there am I in your midst. And there was a familiar Jewish saying that went like this, where two or three are gathered for the study of the Torah, there is God's Shekinah, God's presence among them. So Yeshua is claiming to be the presence of God. And also in a, in a passage, uh, we have a parallel between Matthew and Luke, uh, Matthew 23, uh, and I believe Luke 13, where Yeshua says, how much I long to gather you as a hen gathers her chicks under her wings. Well, you know, when a proselyte would, would come to Judaism, it would, they would be said to come under the wings of the Shekinah. And in the same way, of course, in the Psalms and in Deuteronomy, uh, God shelters his people under his wings. So we have all these kinds of images, not, not just in John, uh, but even going back to the first of the published Gospels, going back to Mark, I mean, look at how Mark opens. He opens with two verses in, in, in chapter 1, verses 2 and 3, one from Malachi, one from Isaiah, about one preparing the way for the Lord, for God himself. And yet, he goes on to speak of John the Baptist 
preparing the way for Jesus. And John even goes on to say in, in 1.8, Mark, Mark 1.8, the one who's coming after me is mightier than I. I immerse you in water, but he will immerse you in the Holy Spirit. So this is the one who has prophesied in the prophets of old who would pour out his spirit on his people. It's all over the place in the prophets. But who was that? Who, who else could have the authority to pour out God's spirit except God himself? And, and, and it's over and over again in the prophets, I'll pour out my spirit on all flesh and on the house of Israel um, and, and, and so on. I could keep going in the gospels, but let me just uh, say something about Paul because some of Paul's letters are some of the earliest uh, writings that we have. Uh, Paul is writing 1 Thessalonians within 20 years, probably less than 20 years after Yeshua's execution and resurrection. And in 1 Thessalonians 3.13, he uses language from Zechariah, uh, Zechariah 14.5, I think, for um, God coming to his people and applies it to Jesus. Or in Romans chapter 10, he does like what Peter does in the first sermon in Acts chapter 2, quotes from, from Joel, where God says he'll pour out his spirit in all flesh and everyone who calls on his name will be saved. Well, he applies that to Jesus. Jesus is the one who pours out the spirit in, in Acts chapter 2. Uh, he's also the one in whose name people must call to be saved. You have that in Romans 10. Um, you have it a, a number of other places. And th this, is, this is besides the formulas where like immersing them in the name of the Father, Son, Holy Spirit, and, and, and so on. Um, and he also has one like that in 2 Corinthians uh, chapter 13. But in 1 Corinthians chapter, chapter 8, verses 5 and 6, he actually uses the Shema. For us, there's but one God, the Father, and one Lord, Yeshua the Messiah. Uh, and, and, and he... You know, he, he's very clearly using the language of the Shema. Uh, if you look at the context, Philippians chapter 2, every knee will bow, every tongue will confess that Jesus is Lord. That's taken from Isaiah 45, where every knee will bow to God. I mean, it's all of it. Revelation, it's just all over the place in Revelation. Uh, Alpha and Omega, first and the last. That's what God says in the book of Isaiah. So, I mean, we could keep, keep going for a long time, but... I, I think we could. <laughs> well, I think uh, he's given us a convincing argument that Yeshua is Lord, and he is God in the flesh, and uh, he is the only Savior. That's awesome. Thank you. Um, you've written this tome on Acts, four books, four parts, and uh, it's a powerful uh, commentary. Now, what's interesting is Luke writes both the Gospel of Luke and Acts, and he says that he collected evidence about the life of Jesus and basically is giving us an account. It's like a biography or historical account. But I'm wondering, uh, uh, this is maybe debated in some circles, whether it's simply history, simply biography, or does Luke have a theology that he is presenting to us or even, say, present an ecclesiology, that is, the way we live as the body of believers, the church, is he showing us a model in any way? How does the theology or pneumatology, and I'll let him describe what those things are in case you don't know. Okay, I'm curious. Sure. Um, it, is, it is helpful to note before, before I go into the second part of the question, in terms of biography and historiography, that the genre of, the literary type of biography had actually evolved over time from a few centuries before this to a few centuries after this. And this was the period of ancient biography that was closest to historiography. So you would expect it to be packed with reliable information or as reliable as the, as the author could get. So that fits uh, the Gospel of Luke and uh, the preface that he has in Luke 1, one to four, and then, of course, going on into Acts, which is a historical monograph, as, as most scholars acknowledge. But having said that, okay, this is, this is the literary type that it was. If you study this literary type, there were a lot of different types of literature. 
One type of literature was a novel, but novels in antiquity were rarely about historical characters, and when they were, they were about characters of the very distant past. And they were purely for entertainment, almost always purely for entertainment. That is, they didn't really have a message to them. By contrast, ancient history and ancient biography did have a message. They were meant to, to provide moral lessons for how to live, sometimes political ideas, sometimes theological ideas. Um, Josephus writes with the theological agenda, uh, so do... Um, well, actually, so did some Greek writers as well. Dionysius of Halicarnassus, always talking about providence and, and so on. So, I mean, often ancient historians and biographers told us they were writing to provide examples for how we can live. And you see this in the book of Acts, uh, even, even at the beginning, when it says that this is... Uh, the first volume I wrote is about what Jesus began to do and teach, implying that the second volume is what he continues to do and... You're not talking about your first volume and second volume? No, 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 Luke, no. Luke's. Luke's, okay. yeah, right. yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> uh, uh, what, what, what Jesus continued to, to do and teach, uh, and that's why you have people acting in the name of Yeshua, B'Shem Yeshua, and it's also why uh, Acts chapter 1 and verse 8, Yeshua says, you you'll be my witnesses. You'll receive power from on high. I'm mixing it with uh, Luke 24, but you'll be my witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and to the outermost parts of the earth. But the people he was addressing directly there didn't get to the outermost parts of the earth. They still haven't reached the outermost parts of the earth by the end of the book of Acts. Most Acts scholars see Acts as open-ended. So you think we're still living in a sense in the book of Acts? Yeah. <laughs> and, and, and like what he says in chapter 2, verses 17 and 18, in the last days, says God, I'll pour out my spirit on all flesh. If it was the last days back then, if anything, it must be laster days now. Yeah, right. It can't be earlier than the last days. And so God is still pouring out the spirit because the mission continues. Okay, can I and we still ask, need the same power for let, that let mission. Let me interject here. So, it says in Acts chapter 1, verse 8, and you shall receive power when the mm -hmm. Holy Spirit comes upon you, yeah. and you shall be witnesses to me. Yes. Would you say that in some ways that verse itself is almost a overview of the whole yes. book? Yes. So dealing with the Holy Spirit and mission, Holy yes. Spirit and evangelizing the world. That's the point of the book. Okay. And, and, and Luke's gospel grounds it in the heritage of Israel. Luke's gospel begins in Jerusalem, ends in Jerusalem. Hmm. Acts begins in Jerusalem and ends in Rome, the heart of the empire in which Luke writes. And so I think in theological terms, what we'd say, it goes from heritage to mission, keeping grounded in the heritage, but also taking that heritage to the ends of the earth so that all the nations can know about the one true God and about the King of Israel whom, whom he has exalted. Now, there are people in certain streams within the body of believers that don't believe the gifts of the Holy Spirit are still operational. They have ceased. They have ended. But if we believe that there is a theology in the book of Acts and a, a pneumatology, a revelation of the Holy Spirit's work, wouldn't that mean that it should be normative? It should be the way we operate with the Holy Spirit's power, his anointing, his gifts in operation. Absolutely. Or did I answer the question? Yeah, you? well, you did, but Sorry. that's all right. But uh, to, to, well, I mean, even, even when he ascends and then gives the spirit, I mean, look at the model of the one ascension we've got most, most explicit in a narratival form in the Tanakh. You've got Elijah ascending and then Elisha receiving a double portion of the spirit. Well, in the same way, Yeshua empowers people with the Spirit, but in 2, 38 and 39, we see that it's not just for the first witnesses. It's for you, for your children, for all who are far off, for as many as the Lord our God will call, and actually, as many as the Lord our God will call actually concludes Joel 2, 32, if we're talking about the English uh, text, so that he's still got that in mind, as well as blending in some other, some other passages. And, 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 but, but in 2, 17 and 18, 
he says, your sons and daughters will prophesy, your young men will see visions, your old men will dream dreams, all my servants, all my headmaids, I will pour out my spirit. Then Peter adds in a line that's not there in Joel, but it, it's summarizing the point, and they will prophesy. It's explicitly stating that a chief characteristic of God's people in the last days will be just like what the prophets said when God would pour out the spirit on all flesh. It's like what Moses prayed in Numbers chapter 11, I think around verse 29. He prayed, I, I wish that all God's people would be prophets. Well, it's available now. We can all listen to God. We can all walk with God intimately, have the same power of the spirit at work in us that was at work in the prophets of old. Wow. Now you quoted that passage uh, that Peter uses and quotes Joel that uh, the spirit would be poured out on men and women, yeah. sons and daughters. Yes. So let's talk about that. Are, are women able to minister in any significant way? I mean, there are some people that think that, you know, that's, it's, a, it's a man thing. You, now you're getting me started. Uh, <laughs> this, is, this was my, the subject of my second book, so. Oh, okay. So, yeah, so we're in let's trouble. Let's not have the whole book tonight. Uh, okay. But we can pick it up on, on uh, Amazon. Right? We can get that. Uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. No but, problem. Okay. Um, how much time do I have for this question? We'll see how it goes. Okay. Uh, yeah, I mean, when Paul is the one that I know a lot of people in academia, they say, okay, Paul was sexist. We really like Jesus, but Paul, male chauvinist pig. Right. Um, but actually, when you read Paul, and you don't just read select passages out of context. I mean, Paul talks about his fellow laborers. In Romans 16, he commends twice as many women for ministering alongside him as he commends men. And in Philippians chapter 4, he, he also mentions women who were together with him in ministry. Now, what these two churches had in common, Rome and Philippi, those were two of the most gender-progressive locations in the Roman Empire. So part of it had to do with the culture, where there was more freedom, you know, it would be less offensive. But I mean, you know, then you, then you look at Corinth and the women have to wear head coverings, which were um, standard practice and f further to the east. Uh, and uh, in a lot of the Eastern Mediterranean, as a, um, it was a form of modesty for married women that they weren't supposed to expose their nude hair in public. Now, uh, even if it had been for men, I wouldn't have to worry. I, my hair is already nude. But, uh, but like in 1 Corinthians 14, 34, and 35, that's one of the two passages often cited against women in ministry. But, you know, it doesn't just say they can't minister. It says they need to be quiet in, in church. Now, I noticed that some of, some of the singers up here were women. They were not being quiet. Yeah, they were, I mean, no offense, but they weren't, you know, they were... They were they were making noise. Right. I mean, it was joyful noise, but I liked it. But anyway, when Paul says silence, though, the context of that is, he says, if they, want, if they want to ask any questions, let them ask their husbands at home. Now, that sounds pretty repressive in, in our culture today, partly because we've been, in a sense, liberated a lot by, by what we have uh, in, in, the, in the New Testament and so on. But in Paul's day, it was considered inappropriate for, well, in certain cultures, it was considered inappropriate for women to speak in front of other women's husbands. And so in a domestic setting, it's all right, but not in a public setting for especially very conservative cultures then. And when you had a house congregation, you're, you're bringing together... Um, you know, it's a domestic setting. It's also a public setting in a way. So, um, and, and also it was considered rude to ask unlearned questions. And it, it was normal to interrupt lectures with questions. So, I'm, so it's okay if I interrupt you? No, no, not you. <laughs> but, <laughs> but, um, but, but why would the women be asking unlearned questions? But if any given social class in a place like Corinth women were only like 10% as likely to be educated as the men. So it's not a matter of the, of the um, lack of Y chromosome. It's not genetic that, that Paul is talking about. 
it has to do with what was available, what was expected culturally, cultural convention, and so on. And then the big one that people often cite is 1 Timothy 2. It's the only text that says, because 1 Corinthians 14 is talking about women interrupting with questions, but, but 1 Timothy 2, um, it's the only text that says that women shouldn't teach, if it, if it says that. I mean, there's a debate about um, how the grammar should be translated. But just assuming the strictest interpretation that women shouldn't teach the Bible, or at least teach it with authority, is it a coincidence that that appears in the, also in the only context, the only, the only setting, or the only set of letters in the Bible where we specifically know that false teachers were targeting women uh, and, and using them to propagate their ideas? So 1 Timothy 5.13 talks about uh, women going from house to house. Most translations say as busybodies, but the Greek word there that's used especially means to spread nonsense or false ideas. And in 2 Timothy 3, 6, and 7, it says that the false teachers were targeting what they called weak-willed women. So why were they targeting the women? And why specifically, as in 1 Timothy 5, widows? Widows didn't have husbands, but widows were also the one group of women that most often owned their own homes. And back then, you know, you wouldn't have a nice place like this to meet in, you'd meet in homes. And so you get your building free if you could, if you could win these people over. And so, and, and also in Titus, it talks about subverting households. So I don't think we should count these passages against the passages that, where, where Paul is affirming the, the ministries of women. Could women be prophets? Could women be apostles? Well, yeah. Is that possible? <laughs> First Corinthians chapter 11, it says that women should, shouldn't pray or prophesy with their heads uncovered. We already mentioned why the heads should be covered. But he's presuming that women can and should pray and prophesy. And actually, you've got Deborah, who is not only a prophetess, but Judges 4.4, she was judge over all of Israel. Uh, you have Isaiah's wife in Isaiah 8 as a prophetess. You have Miriam, who's called a prophetess, in Exodus chapter 15. So uh, you have Huldah. I mean, she fulfills the same role in 2 Kings 22 that Isaiah fulfilled 100 years earlier uh, when, when Hezekiah sent for the word of the Lord from him. Josiah sends to, to Huldah. Um, but so, yeah. Do we have any examples in the New Testament of a of a woman having any role like that, prophet, apostle, Oh, yeah. Oh, teacher. Well, yeah. You've got Simeon and Anna paired together in Luke's uh, gospel, Luke chapter 2. Acts chapter 21, alongside Agabus, the older male prophet, you've got the four virgin daughters of Philip. Um, so you've got young and old, you've got uh, male and female, just like Acts 2, 17 and 18 says. And then as far as apostles, you have Andronicus and Junia in... Romans 16, 7, who are of note among the apostles, sometimes people... Which of, the, which of those was a woman? <laughs> Junia. Junia. Yeah. So. Some people have argued that Junia is actually a contraction for the male name Junianus, because there was a male name Junianus, but it's never contracted that way, and it would be entirely unnatural to contract a Latin name that way. So... Some people say, ah, no, there could only be 12 apostles. Well, then what about Paul? <laughs> I mean, and Paul also names um, Silas and Timothy as apostles. In Galatians 1.19, he names James, the brother of Jesus, as an apostle. Um, he also, in 1 Corinthians 15, verses 5 to 7, says Jesus appeared to the 12 and then to some others and then to all the apostles. So, and you've got 70 sent ones in Luke chapter, chapter 10. So all, all that to say, Paul uses the term more broadly for like, people who pioneering things for the kingdom. Here, here in Israel, in modern Hebrew, we use, um, it's the word shaliach, yes. right, for apostle. It's also the title of pizza delivery boys. Uh, just thought you'd know, like to know that. You know, they, they're messengers, they bring stuff, and, and they're sent out by the pizza yeah. company to go on their mission. 
So well, anyway. authorized by them. Yes. Right, right. That's, okay. that's, shaliach is, is the word that, the, the original Hebrew word that most people, right. most scholars think is behind right. the Greek word apostolos. Right, okay. We're getting into some, you know, sticky kind of questions, but we shouldn't avoid them, right? Yes? Okay. So we're going to talk about, uh, you know, there are some people that really, non-Jews, they get really excited about Jewish stuff and love to join Messianic congregations. They sometimes will even dress like an Orthodox Jew with a kippah, a prayer shawl and everything, but they're not Jewish. And in some Messianic circles, they actually outnumber the Jews in the congregation, which can be problematic. Um, not to say that it wouldn't be welcome, but if they overwhelm the congregation, it could be a challenge. Um, and some would believe, even Gentiles that are saying that really, if you're a believer in Yeshua, the Rabbi Yeshua, you must keep the laws of Moses, be circumcised, eat kosher, etc. What are your thoughts on that? You've actually had some involvement with the Messianic movement in your early days, so you know what I'm talking about, I think. Yeah. When you talk about keeping the law, it depends on what you mean by keeping the law. Right. So you tell us what it means. <laughs> depends on which passage you're looking at. But uh, it, th there's a sense in terms of cultural identification where Paul speaks of being under the law and, and being a Jew to the Jews, which was what he already was, and being you know, something else to people who are different. Um, so cultural identification is one thing. But in terms of being under the law, when Yeshua teaches about it in the Sermon on the Mount, he says that not one jot or tittle is going to pass away. Uh, the, the smallest stroke or letter, and in Hebrew, of course, that's the yod, and there, there was a familiar saying or, or story line where King Solomon, uh, the, the Yod cries out to God, God, King Solomon is trying to uproot me from the Bible, to which God responds, a thousand Solomons shall be uprooted, but not a single Yod will pass from my, from my word. And, and another story that said, um, you remember when Sarai's name is changed to Sarah? There's a yod taken out of her name in Genesis 17. Well, in Numbers 13, Hoshea gets, I'm not saying that right, but gets a yod stuck in his name, Yehoshua. And so the rabbis looked at that. You said, they said, you see, not a single yod can pass from God's word. And so when, when Jesus says this, he's, he's summoning the mind, yes, all of God's word is forever. But not all God's word is for all circumstances. And he goes on to talk about, you know, when the Pharisees would talk about a fence around the Torah, Yeshua makes a fence too, but it's a different kind of fence. So it's, it's, you know, not arguing about whether it's kosher to eat an egg that a chicken laid on the Sabbath or whatever. But... Um, so what about Gentiles? Oh, sorry. I didn't finish this part. I know I'm going off, but... <laughs> But I have to explain about the keeping of the law. Go for it. So anyway, uh, he, 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 he says, all this is forever. He says, you've heard it said, and, and rabbis would do this too, you've heard it said, you shall not kill. Jesus says, I say to you, you shall not want to kill. You've heard it said, you shall not commit adultery. I say to you, you shall not want to commit adultery. And he goes through like six times and, and qualifies it and says, what God is really looking for is your heart. And so also in, uh, in chapter 12 and verse 7, and in chapter 9, I think in verse 12, he quotes from Hosea 6 that God desires mercy more than sacrifice. He's got a hermeneutic. You know, everyone who reads the Torah, you, you know, you have, to, you have to have some sort of... I mean, the rabbis would do this. Uh, which takes precedence, the Sabbath or circumcision on the eighth day? Um, which takes precedence, the Sabbath or a particular holy day? A and so on. So, so they would have to um, evaluate which parts took precedence over others. Well, Jesus does that. And so he gives us the spirit of the law, the, the heart of the law. 
And I think that's what Paul is carrying forward when he talks about how Gentiles are not under the law. Um, but it's not against the spirit of the law. He's against putting them under the law in the sense of requiring Gentiles to be circumcised. They don't have to become physically Jewish um, to, to be followers of Yeshua. It's like in Galatians 3, where he talks about, you've received the spirit. And I think this was the issue between Paul and his rivals in Galatia. They, they read Genesis 17 in a way that makes good sense. You know, you need to be circumcised to become part of God's people. But the prophets had spoken of how God was going to pour out the Spirit on his people in the end time. And they also spoke of spiritual circumcision. I mean, Deuteronomy 10, 16, Deuteronomy 30, verse 6, I believe it is, um, being spiritually uncircumcised, you've got it in Leviticus, you've got it in Jeremiah 9, and so on. Paul speaks of a spiritual circumcision. If, if people have received the Spirit, that's the mark that they belong to God's people. In, in Paul's language, they've been grafted in and into the heritage of Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, and the prophets. So they don't have to add something to that because they have what the signs of the covenant merely pointed towards. The, the new covenant with the law being written in the hearts, the, the gift of the Spirit does that, uh, going from Jeremiah 31 to Ezekiel 36. And anyway, I'm talking too long, but... Do you keep the, the Sabbath yourself? Yes. Why? Well, the Sabbath, what, I mean, the law contextualizes, there's some things in the law that are specifically for an agrarian context, specifically on the land, you know, so, and, and so rabbis have worked to see how to update those principles for a different context. But in the case of the Sabbath, see, I can't be a Sabbath goy. Um, in, in, in the case of the Sabbath, that was, that was already built into creation. Before the law of Moses. That was before the law of Moses. Right. So, Even tithing, maybe, too? <laughs> well, before tithing. Oh, oh, you're saying tithing Tithe. was before yeah. the law? Yeah. yeah, in Genesis 14. Although it was also an ancient Near Eastern practice. Okay. Uh, Sabbath is unique to mm -hmm. Israel in, in the ancient Near East. But, it, yeah. Okay. We're going to go to one more question. We've done pretty good. I didn't know if we'd get past... Two or three questions. In, in Isaiah 56. Oh, wait a minute. Sorry. Isaiah Maybe we aren't going to. <laughs> sorry. Go ahead. Go ahead. Isaiah 56 does talk about uh, the foreigner or the eunuch. You know, eunuchs were excluded from the covenant. They couldn't right. be circumcised. Deuteronomy 23. Who, who keeps my Sabbaths. Mm -hmm. You know, so, you know, I, I don't get real. You know, if somebody keeps it on a different day, I'm like, okay, Romans 14, 5 and 6. I'm not going to get bent out of shape. But... If somebody doesn't keep it at all, I mean, that doesn't even make good sense because the way God built our bodies, it's part of creation. We need a rest. That is true. Nicodemus, he comes by night to Yeshua. Very interesting story in John chapter 3. And he calls Jesus, Yeshua, a teacher in Israel. So there was great recognition of, of Jesus being a teacher. Um, but Yeshua tells Nicodemus, who's an honored religious man, it's not enough. You need more. What's the more? Oh, yeah, he's very specific about that. Sometimes people would ask teachers, and we have this in the Talmud and elsewhere, people would ask teachers, what must we do to have eternal life? Uh, somebody asks Yeshua that. Well, eternal life literally goes back to Daniel 12 too. it's the life of the coming age. And it's the life when the resurrection of the dead takes place. Obviously, that hasn't happened yet physically. Well, for most of us. But the first fruits of the resurrection, of course, that's what Jesus did. He inaugurated this so that we're in the already not yet uh, tension between what we're expecting. We're expecting the king to come, but the king has already come the first time and introduced his kingdom in like a, a mustard seed before the, the fullness of it. So Jesus is going to tell Nicodemus, uh, probably Noctimon 
uh, if I'm pronouncing the Hebrew right, I, uh, uh, is that right? Okay. That's pretty good. Okay, sorry. My, um, I, I, yeah, I. It's actually not a common name in I, I, Israel today, so. Oh, it, it, it does appear in the Talmud and elsewhere, but. I'm saying today. But oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. 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 Um, but anyway, he tells, he tells Nicodemus about how he can have eternal life. But you know, a life has to have a beginning point. And so he talks to him about being born again. He speaks of being born from above, uh, which was a good Jewish way of speaking of being born from, from God. Now, Jewish people recognized that they were God's children. That's already in the Old Testament. You're children of God, uh, children, of, children of Abraham, children of God. And so uh, when I say Old Testament and New Testament, just, I'm, I'm just using the conventional titles. I don't actually believe either one of them are testaments per se or, or covenants, they, even though they talk about covenants. Right. But uh, the beginning of eternal life is being born anew, born from God. And Nicodemus doesn't understand what he's, what Jesus is saying. So Jesus explains, I'm talking about being born of water, the, the water of the Spirit. Now, when a, when a proselyte would, a, a Gentile would become Jewish, one of the things that they would do was they would be immersed in water. That's, that's why um, John, John the, the Baptist, uh, Yochanan the Immerser, says, to, to the crowds that are coming. Don't say to yourselves, we have Abraham as our ancestor. And, and then, you know, he's immersing them. Uh, he's saying, you have to come to God the same way. Everybody has to come to God the same way. You can't just depend on your heritage to make you right with God. And so he says that also to, to Nicodemus. That, uh, so he would understand, later, later rabbis talked about um, this, this immersion as being reborn, like as a new creature. And so he should understand the image, but he can't because, whoa, he's Jewish and he's a teacher in Israel. But Yeshua is specifying not just an immersion in water, but the immersion in the spirit. Um, water is used as a symbol for the spirit explicitly in the context of the Feast of Tabernacles in John 7, 37 to 39. So this is what Ezekiel prophesied when he talked about restoring his people Israel. He would also cleanse them with pure water. He would put his spirit within them and put a new spirit within them. And so he goes on to talk about that which is born of the spirit of spirit. And he talks about hearing the, the, voice, of, the voice of the spirit or the, or the sound of the wind, which, of course, uh, the chapter right after Ezekiel 36 is Ezekiel 37, about God's Ruach coming and bringing life uh, and restoring his people. So this is like a foretaste of that. We have a foretaste of the coming age by our experience of the Spirit. It's, it's the mark of the believer, uh, this relationship that we have with God. So I know I need to hurry. So, uh, but finally, when we get to verse 16, I'm skipping up, I'm skipping the um, serpent lifted in the wilderness with Moses. John, still John 3. Yeah, yeah mm -hmm. John, John 3, 16 a verse with which some people may be familiar. Um, and actually, it doesn't say God so loved the world, like this is how much he loved the world. The, the, in the original, it says, this is how God loved the world. But uh, obviously, it is so much. Uh, of course, we know how much God loved Israel. It's all over the place in Scripture. But here it speaks of his love for the whole world, because even from the beginning, it was his plan that God would bless all the families of the earth in Abraham. And so, this is how God loved the world. He gave his only son, just like what Abraham was called to do, God did for all of us. So whoever puts their trust in him has eternal life. Not just that we will have eternal life when the future resurrection happens, but that that eternal life is available to us, the beginning of it is available to us now through Yeshua the Messiah. And that happened to you. You were an atheist. Yes. I'm going to ask the worship team to come and join us again, but I want, 
you to just tell us briefly, a person who did not believe in God at all would become an incredible student of God's word and teacher of God's word and be so full of the spirit. What happened to you? It's all God's gift. He's so good, so, so kind, because I had no claim on him. I didn't grow up in a believing family. Um, I found out eventually, I did have some believing ancestors, but, but not, not the family I was in. And I, I, was, I made fun of believers. Uh, if, you, if you know anybody who makes fun of you as a believer, <laughs> I was one of those kind. And, and one day, some people shared with me about Jesus. And I argued with them for 45 minutes. But even though I'd studied different religions and different philosophies, as I was walking home, this was different. Because I was overwhelmed by the presence of God. And as I... As I, I mean, I, I was the kind of person I wanted empirical evidence, but he went, he went beyond empirical evidence. He gave me the evidence of his own presence. I got to my, to my home, and I was struggling in, in my mind back and forth, but his presence was so strong, it was like, look, okay, I'm obviously wrong about atheism. God is here. And so I would be an idiot not to take advantage. This might be my only chance. So I, I said, God, I don't know how what they explain to me, how it works. I don't understand how Jesus dying for me and rising from the dead, how that makes me right with you. But if that's what you're saying, I'll believe it. But God, I don't know how to be saved. So if you want to save me, you're going to have to do it yourself. And all of a sudden, I felt something rushing through my body like I'd never felt before. I jumped up, scared out of my mind. <laughs> Should I go on and tell the rest of it? Or is that... Um, and so... You know, that was the beginning of my experience as a believer. Um, it was, you know, then I had to really start cramming, understanding the Bible. I didn't know anything. The kids in You're Sunday playing school. catch up with all these Christians that have been around a long time. Yeah. yeah. And then, um, but two days after this experience, I, I walked into a church and the pastor asked me, okay, you said you were, you were saved. Are you sure? I said, no, I'm not. I don't know if I did it right. <laughs> So he led me in a prayer that was basically what had happened two days before, but this time I didn't, I didn't cut it off. I was just overwhelmed with the awesome majesty and glory of, of God. The, the, I mean, the, even as an atheist, I, I thought, you know, if the only hope that there could be for living forever, for eternal life, would be if there was somebody infinite who would be willing to give it to us. And I was like... <laughs> How could that be true? How could something so good possibly be true? But as I was overwhelmed by the Spirit this time, all I could do was praise Him and thank Him. And, and I knew that I could only praise, give Him praise of which He was worthy if He gave me the words to do it. And of course, He could have done it in English. He could have done it in Hebrew, which would have been the same thing to me as what happened because at the, that point I didn't know any Hebrew. But God knows lots of languages. It started coming out in another language. And I had no idea what that was. I hadn't read the Bible yet. I had just been converted from atheism. Just, just become a, 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 a proselyte <laughs> to, to uh, uh, faith in, in Yeshua, a, a, a new follower of the King. And so he... Uh, yeah, he changed me. He sure did. Hallelujah. Would you pray? Would you pray also for anyone who's with us tonight who's maybe in the place you were and they need to know the truth and wonder maybe Yeshua is the truth, not so sure, but maybe the Holy Spirit has touched their heart tonight. Would you do that? Thank you. You, you can say something afterwards, right? If you need, okay. Your Majesty, you are awesome. And Lord, there is no one like you in heaven or on earth. Thank you for saving me. Thank you for bringing your salvation to this world. 
at such great cost to yourself that you loved us so much and in this way that you gave your only son. And Lord, if there's anyone here who, who doesn't know the preciousness of your presence, your Shekinah, I pray, we pray, that you will touch them right now and engage them with your presence so that they know how real you are and so they become a, a believer in and a follower of you through your Son, the Messiah, Yeshua. If there's anyone who desires to follow Yeshua, we're here. We'd love to meet you. We'd love to share with you how we could help you grow in your new faith and become a follower and uh, serve him. He's worth serving. And there is eternal life. And it is through him. Hallelujah. Worship team, would you lead us in a song? And thank you for uh, listening. Be prayerful for tomorrow night and uh, Tuesday night, 6 p.m. in the Celebration Center, which is just 11 stairs up from the lobby here. And it'll be great to study uh, the Jewish roots of Matthew and Revelation tomorrow evening. Love you and appreciate you so much. Amen. Would we welcome them to Jerusalem? Yeah, the Keeners? Yeah, bless you.